From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Agencies will have a federal capital revolving fund to tap to build out their infrastructures if Congress passes President Biden's infrastructure bill. The legislation includes $18 billion for the Department of Veterans Affairs for hospitals and clinics. GovExec reports the bill includes $10 billion for other civilian agencies, including the money for the revolving fund. Microsoft is the winner of a virtual reality headset contract from the Army that could be worth up to $22 billion. The Army says it will use the integrated visual augmentation system for fighting, rehearsing and training on the same platform. GovExec reports the devices are based on Microsoft's HoloLens gaming device. A protest of another Army contract is dead tonight after the Government Accountability Office dismissed it. IBM protested a $700 million task order for support services for a series of Army Enterprise Resource Planning Systems. Gov, uh, NextGov reports the Army awarded the contract to Accenture Federal Services twice before IBM's protest. New Jersey Representative Andy Kim said recently when he worked at the State Department, it banned him from working on Korean issues because of his Korean-American heritage. The House Appropriations Committee looked at diversity and inclusion issues at the State Department Thursday. Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley is a diplomat in residence at Oberlin College. She's former U.S. Ambassador to Malta. She was a witness at the hearing. Madam Ambassador, thank you very much for coming on the program. What was the message that you wanted to take to that uh, committee hearing? Well, the most important message, I think, for everyone is that the State Department has looked at this issue for a long while, and the reality is we can get this done. We can make the movement that we need to make to improve our diplomacy by using three watchwords to frame transparency, intentionality, and accountability. And if we put those three things in place, we can stop talking about this issue and make progress. Why do you think we have not stopped talking about the progress? Obviously, we have continued to talk about it. Why have we not made the progress that is necessary to make to make the State Department what it should be? I believe that there have been good intentioned people, good intentioned policies, reports, recommendations over the years, but there has not been the confluence of the information, the recommendations, and the will to get it done. It's easy to overlook the, the health of an organization as you're out trying to fulfill its mission. But taking care of its people, those who do the work up and down the ranks, is the most important thing for success. And any strong business knows that. Now the Department of State, under new leadership, along with incredible support from Congress, and the American people are focused on getting this done. So to take your three-step plan, um, transparency, uh, it, it appears we're in that stage now. We're learning that this is an issue and, and we're learning exactly what the gaps are and potentially how to fill them. Intentionality requires what in your mind, Madam Ambassador? What would you like to see Secretary Blinken? What would you like to see uh, the other people that could do something about this at the State Department do to demonstrate that intentionality, ma'am? Sure. Well, I believe he has made clear from the beginning in his uh, hearing for confirmation his intent to focus on this issue. Other secretaries have done it, but he announced the uh, position of a chief diversity, equity and inclusion officer, someone who's going to give 
real attention from the Secretary's office on this issue. And I think one of the challenges, certainly in my 30 years at the department, is that there have been lots of really good things done in one bureau, in a different office, at one embassy. But the coordination of all of those to really drill down into what works. And I know many people talk about, my, my grandmother certainly did, about scratching your left ear with your right hand. That gets to the intentionality. Use your right hand to scratch your right ear. And so not doing a program with the hope that it's going to have an impact, but get the data, make sure that we've got social scientists, those who can help us understand what works and what's going to get us there in an effective way. And the point of this is to improve the outcomes, to improve our diplomacy, to bring in a broader array of recommendations, of options, of perspectives that can help us solve the problems that the United States deals with internationally. The third item that you listed is accountability. Uh, what does accountability look like? Is that just accountability uh, of that person, of that diversity inclu and inclusion officer to the Secretary of State? Or are there other levels of accountability that will be important to fulfill this vision, ma'am? So for the Chief Diversity Officer, absolutely not. It is going to take the village. It's going to take the entire organization. The culture of the organization has to change so that we include not only incredible leaders, incredible managers, and good judgment and substantive knowledge, but also those who are working to bring along the entire workforce. That support for diversity, that support for inclusion, making sure that no one gets left behind. Everyone's not going to be a U.S. ambassador or, or secretary of state. But everyone needs to be able to reach their full potential. The United States, the American people demand that. And so accountability for what gets done and what doesn't get done. This conversation, ma'am, is similar to the conversation that's happening in the Defense Department right now uh, about how uh, the department proposes to improve diversity and inclusion in the general and flag officer ranks. Um, does, does, the, does, the, does the culture issue solve this to some degree? Does the, just the idea that someone can come into the State Department regardless of his or her background and have a successful career, does that go a long way just to addressing this issue, ma'am? Well, recognizing that, I believe, will help a great deal. Uh, we do have people in the State Department with from a wide variety of backgrounds, of experiences. I often tell young audiences when I'm speaking that the most successful person in my class was someone who came in without a college degree, but with a lot of travel and real world knowledge that he was able to use in an expert manner. So we have that already, but it's a matter of making sure people do know that, understand it and know how to value it. Madam Ambassador, 30 seconds left. You'd mentioned outcomes. What are the successful outcomes that we can look at five years from now or at some point down the, down the path? I believe one of the first things we're going to see is a more representative organization. So you're going to see uh, people from all backgrounds in all ranks of the department. And I believe you're going to see more imaginative form policy. Madam Ambassador, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. My pleasure. Thank you. Up next, the Biden administration's skinny budget on the way. Straight ahead on Government Matters, will the Defense Department have to go on a diet? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The Biden administration's skinny budget should release soon for fiscal year 2022. It'll include top-line numbers for defense spending. Budget watchers expect that number to stay flat over the next few years. Mark Kansian, senior advisor of the International Security Program, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's writing about whether 2021 could be the last year of growth for the military budget. Mark, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. My main takeaway from your work is this. Uh, as you write it, full view will not be available until the administration publishes a new national security strategy and the national defense strategy, likely in January or February 2022. An accurate timeline, to, how does that impact the way that we should think about the potential budget between now and then? Well, administrations typically get their full strategy out after about a year. The Trump administration did that, the Obama administration did that, but we'll get some insights into where they're going uh, in the FY 2022 budget, which will come out maybe at the end of uh, April, uh, beginning of May. You write in this work about each of the branches and the potential impact that the budget will have on those branches. Is there one of the five that you write about that strikes you as particularly um, outstanding in either uh, what you expected to see and it complying with that expectation or what you expect to see that's very dramatically different than what people are expecting? Yes, I think that uh, each one of the services is going to have its challenges. Uh, probably at the top of the list is the Army. Uh, many budgeteers and strategists look to cut Army end strength to fund other priorities, uh, particularly advanced technologies to compete with China in the Western Pacific. Uh, the Army Chief of Staff has been aggressively making the argument that the Army has a role in the Western Pacific with its land-based long-range fires and uh, missile defense and global logistics capabilities. Nevertheless, it's going to be a, a tough sell. You write in this work, Mark, if Army end strength is squeezed as hard as many people expect, that Army redesign and modernization will slow considerably. What's the implication of that, do you think, for the big six modernization priorities that the Army has set out? Or might those even change completely based on the fact that that was a Trump administration construct? I think there are going to be two tensions here. First, the Army will want to hang on to as much force structure as it can. Traditionally, it's done that. The uh, Army chief of staff has said that he thinks that the force structure, the regular army should be at about 500,000. It's now at about 485,000. And as the army tries to do that with a tighter budget, it's going to have to squeeze modernization. It had been looking to field many of these new programs in the mid 2020s. Those will likely have to be pushed out. Further, there's going to be a tension on the strategy side for the army. That is that some of the programs that the army uh, would uh, prioritize, you know, for example, a replacement for the Bradley fighting vehicle and a future vertical lift might not resonate with strategists who are looking at the Western Pacific. They might put uh, missile defense, long-range fires, um, and uh, long-range lo uh, uh, logistics uh, higher up. For all of the reasons that you're listing and for other strategic reasons that we've discussed on this program over the last number of years, the Navy is expected to be a big winner in whatever happens moving forward, at least strategically. How would you expect to see that play out in the budget process, Mark? Yeah, the Navy had widely supported plans to grow to 355 ships in the Trump administration, but it was never able to articulate an affordable plan to do that. Uh, today, there are about 298 ships. The Biden administration will set a new shipbuilding plan and target 
it might end up in the 320s. Uh, this new plan will likely look like a smaller version of what Secretary Esper described at the end of the Trump administration, which emphasized submarines, unmanned ships, and new classes of smaller vessels. But unlike Esper and many strategists, the Navy has been emphatic that it doesn't want small carriers, but might accept a smaller carrier force. Um, the Marine Corps, uh, General Berger, when uh, he became the commandant, uh, laid out a vision for the Marine Corps that you refer to, Force Design 2030. Um, it, it, what's the possibility of Force Design 2030 becoming reality, at least from a budget perspective, if budgets continue to flatten or shrink? General Berger articulated a vision to restructure the Marine Corps to focus on island operations in the Western Pacific. And this is consistent with the strategy and where may, many strategists want to go. So it's likely to be supported. Uh, however, the Marine Corps also identified offsets, which from a budget point of view is commendable, but it might lose that money because uh, the budget's uh, coming down. The Marine Corps also risks irrelevant other, uh, irrelevance in other theaters because of its focus on the Western Pacific. We have about a minute left, Mark. You do a service, I think, to readers by focusing not just on the military branches as separate entities, but also on special operations, civilians, and contractors. What are the implications there, and what should those organizations watch as they look at these skinny budgets coming out, especially the contracting community? Yeah. Uh, special Operations Command, uh, you know, they're uh, military service in all but name. They've been growing steadily. Uh, over the last uh, 20 years, I expect that to continue. Their challenge is going to be to uh, maintain quality as they continue to expand and also to show how they're relevant to great power conflict, not just counterterrorism. Uh, for contractors, uh, there'll probably be some effort to, to squeeze contractors. The Democrats have very often done that. But as military forces get smaller, there'll be a lot of pressure uh, to execute uh, uh, government activities in other ways, and contractors are uh, able uh, to step in there. Uh, and uh, that includes not only contractors back in the United States, but also overseas contractors. Uh, those have been uh, have become essentially a permanent part of our force structure. Mark Kansian, thanks very much for joining me. As always, great analysis. Thanks for having me on the show. You can find a link to Mark's work at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, clearing out the call center traffic at the VA. Straight ahead on Government Matters, DevSecOps works for customer experience, too. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. This month's Digital VA is brought to you by Pure Storage. The coronavirus chatbot at the Department of Veterans Affairs has cut call center volume at the agency in half. It's part of the push for DevSecOps at the agency. Dan McCune is executive director for software product management at the Office of Information and Technology at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Dan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. How has the evolution of DevSecOps impacted the way that you're managing your product line at VA? Thanks for having me. Um, so DevSecOps has been a, a, trans, a transformation we're in the middle of. We're probably about halfway through. I, I think when I when I think about DevOps and I think about development and operations, I think about that feedback loop. How do we make sure that we've got flow going from our operations to our development team? Uh, and one of the things I find encouraging are um, how we're handling tickets and how we're handling incidents. And one of the things 
that really encourages me is when we look at tickets and incidences that are older than 30 days, which tend to be the hard stuff to solve, um, we've been able to drive that down about 78% in the last year. So we're seeing our operations teams uh, you know, do a good job of, of getting better and faster at fixing things. And we're also seeing those uh, affect development as, as we fix those problems and those systemic problems in our code. Take me to the nuts and bolts of how that's working. So um, we have uh, our development teams. We organized our teams into product teams. So we kind of switched from project to product. That's been a pivotal, a pivotal moment for us. We had separate, we were a typical uh, siloed IT organization where we had development teams, we had operations teams. Development would throw it over the wall to operations, kind of like a hand grenade, right? You throw it over the wall and you run away because you know it's going to blow up. Uh, our operations teams accepted it kind of like with, with T-Rex arms, right? You're afraid to catch it. Uh, you know it's a mess. You, you, you don't know where it is. No amount of documentation is going to make you comfortable. So that, that was kind of the organization we were in. We changed to be persistent teams that were that covered the life cycle. So ops and, and dev blended together. There's no more space between those teams. Um, and that has changed the way we look at our development, changed the way we look at operations, and made that much more streamlined. What did you run up against? Any bumps in the road as you tried uh, to execute on this vision? Yeah, change management. You hear that over and over again. Uh, and we tried to do a good job. I think we did a good job of getting the word out um, to our team, to IT. And we certainly shaped the vocabulary. We, you know, we set the, the North Star. But our customers, and particularly the executives in the customer organizations, we could have done a better job of, of laying the runway. And, and I think that would have reduced friction and made this rollout happen a little faster. What would you advise somebody who's starting down the same road as you to do differently? Anything beyond what you just laid out there? So there are a lot of opinions. There are a lot of experts in DevSecOps. You have to chart your own path. And, and certainly you want to take in a, a lot of input. I've read, I think, every DevOps book Gene Kim has, read, has written. Uh, we've certainly got a rich uh, environment of contractors that, have, that are you know, smart in this area. But you have to tailor your your transformation to your organization, and, that, and I think some of our early starts were were following somebody else's script. Uh, you you have to write your own script. Is there anything in this journey beyond the better results that you outlined at the beginning that was visible to the end user? Do they see any? D does somebody different respond to them to these tickets, or is there something else that they see differently other than they they get stuff fixed better and faster? Yeah, so certainly, you know, user experience, I think about that from two perspectives. One is response to incidences, right? We're 50% faster at responding to a user when they, when they submit a ticket. That's certainly measurable. But I think, too, we want to switch from traditional development metrics where we're measuring speed and we're measuring features and we're measuring budgets uh, to to focusing on the same outcomes the business is focused on. And I think one of the areas where we've seen that is in our education product line or our GI Bill product line. We do a lot of claims processing in VA, whether it's health claims or benefit claims. 
Um, and the volumes we get are, you know, extremely high, thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of claims. And so our efficiency of processing claims is key. In our GI Bill product line, we measure efficiency, how many claims a claims processor can process. Uh, we've driven that down 50% this last year. That directly affects those, those people processing claims. And ultimately, it affects our veteran as well, who has less wait times for, for, for uh, either a callback or a payment on their claims. Do the DevSecOps techniques that you followed to uh, achieve this success apply to things that aren't problematic yet, that, that are things that are still in development so they don't reach the ticket stage? Yeah, certainly. I think, uh, to me, uh, there, there's a sports analogy, right? That when, when In football, you look at that guy on the field that has the most speed. That's the most dangerous guy on the field. And I think in business and even in government, speed is, is ultimately important. It, it allows us to quickly pivot to customers' feedback. And so one of our core DevOps uh, muscle movements was increasing our velocity. And we've driven that down 4x in the last two years. And that allows us to be effective in um, releasing software, releasing it faster and getting that feedback. But I would say it also helps us quicker on the pivot. Uh, and, and nowhere was that more apparent than during COVID. Our ability to quickly pivot to the new demands uh, put on us by, by COVID-19. Uh, and I think we, we introduced 52 new systems. We made major updates to about 126 systems. That was never possible before we started our DevOps transformation. Dan, congratulations on your success. Thanks for talking about it with me. Thank you very much. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show when you get our daily program guide right on your phone. You text GOVMATTERS to 58671 to get it. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.